The Pre-Paces podcast is brought to you by two brilliant sponsors. Paces Ahead is a fantastic four-day face-to-face paces course run in Brentford, London. They bring you a whole host of patients with fascinating stories and reliable signs, and these patients are absolutely delighted to allow you to hone your exam skills prior to exam day. Some of the patients actually are used in the exams themselves, and the next courses are running from the 20th to the 23rd of May, and then I will be helping out on the course running on the 28th to the 31st of May. Please do come and say hello. I'd love to have a chat and hopefully help you on your way to passing your paces. But if you can't make the course for whatever reason, our other sponsor, Pass Test, has got you covered with their market-leading online revision resource. There are tons of videos which help you revise from the comfort of your own home. And most listeners that I've spoken to have said this is equally essential for your paces success. But that's enough for me for now. Let's get into this week's episode of the Pre-Paces Podcast. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Williams, and this week I was joined by acute medical registrar with a specialist interest in stroke, Dr. Jen Collinson, where we took an in-depth look at this classic paces station of transient ischemic attacks. I just wanted to pass on a big thank you for all of the messages of support. And for those of you who love the show, we have set up an online tip jar where you can support us in creating more podcasts to help our future listeners pass the MRCP paces. Like many doctors across the world, I am an absolute coffee addict. And so to quench my caffeine cravings, you can buy me a coffee for the price of three great British pounds over at buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. That's buymeacoffee.com slash podcast. But enough about that for now. Let's jump into my chat with Dr. Jen Collinson. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, the only podcast that has the aim of fixing your transient facial droop brought on by your MRCP revision. And in today's episode, we are taking an in-depth look at transient ischemic attacks or TIAs as a possible Paces topic. Joining us is Dr. Jen Collinson, an acute medicine registrar in the Seven Deanery who has a subspecialist interest in stroke. So Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Just to start off, Jen, why do you think it is that TIAs make such a good case in MRCP paces? Well, I think first and foremost, they are easy to put in paces because the symptoms are by definition transient. So you can bring any old actor who can pretend that they've had a TIA without having to have any specific um, examination findings. But also, I mean, TIAs are a really common condition. They come up all the time on the medical take, in ambulatory care, in ED, and they are a good test of your general medical knowledge and because there's lots of stroke mimics that can present as TIAs. And so your general approach to transient neurological symptoms is quite a useful thing to assess in paces, I think. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more. And it is an absolute favourite in paces. But Jen, just uh, before we get started how frequently do you manage patients who are presenting either on the take or um, who end up coming to a stroke ward who have symptoms like TIAs? I have seen it from both perspectives in that I see it um, in acute medicine and we probably have one or two TIA or transient neurology presentations on the medical take per shift Um, But also from the stroke side, I mean, I have been in TIA clinic the past few days and we tend to get five or so referrals a day from GPs, ED, paramedics and the medical team in the hospital. So there's lots of people that manage TIAs. It's useful to feel confident managing them, whatever your role is. And I think another problem is that a lot of people are really unskilled, really de-skilled at stroke medicine because during the day the stroke team tend to see patients in hours in most hospitals so a lot of medics don't feel that confident dealing with TIAs because you often don't see them they've dealt with by ED GPs or the stroke team directly. So no doubt this is going to be helpful to all of our listeners not only in paces but 
also in their clinical practice. So let's get started with transient ischemic attacks. So Jen, starting with the very basics, what is a TIA or transient ischemic attack and how does it differ from a stroke? So the textbook definition is that a TIA is a transient episode of focal neurological dysfunction of vascular etiology that isn't associated with a complete cerebral infarction and with symptoms that last less than 24 hours. Whereas a stroke is very similar apart from that the neurological symptoms last over 24 hours. And I mean, in clinical practice, that is definitely not as black and white as that. But for the purposes of a PACES exam, if they ask you the definition, then technically it's the 24 hour cutoff between TIA and stroke. I guess in the examination itself, the first step that the candidates are going to maybe get a flag that they suspect this could be something such as a TIA or a stroke is going to be the lead in the brief that they get before they actually enter the station. And at this point, it's important to say that it's most probably likely to be included as a station five in a clinical context. So that's the brief clinical consultation station. But there are elements which um, we'll touch on later related to the sort of communication aspects. So what is the likely lead-in for Station 5 that the case could be something related to a TIA? So I'm sure the vignette will be something like you're asked to see a patient who is presented with transient neurological symptoms. So they insert either sensory symptoms, motor symptoms, speech disturbance, visual loss. They're the usual ones. And something that you should definitely be vigilant to is if they mention vascular risk factors. So they may be kind and say, this patient has a history of hypertension, ischemic heart disease, or AF, obviously big red flag, and that you're asked to assess the patient and come up with a management plan. Perfect. So that's going to be the likely lead in. So once the candidates or listeners enter the station, what are the most important aspects when we take a history from these patients? So I always start with a patient's account of what happened. And like all good histories, the first question should be very open and just let them talk and tell you as much as they want to. They'll tell you all about their transient symptoms. I think the key is to, after they've given their spiel, to drill down for specifics into the the symptom that they're describing. So for instance, if it was transient weakness, you want to know exactly what was weak. Was it face? Was it face and arm? Was it face, arm and leg? Was it unilateral or bilateral? And that's really critical because TIA will only ever be unilateral weakness. You want to know what they were doing at the time, how it affected their function. That's a big one in life, but also definitely in paces because you want to be all holistic. How long did their symptoms last? Did the symptoms come on suddenly or did they come on over a period of time? And did they wear off suddenly or did they wear off over a period of time? That's so that applies to weakness and sensory loss for speech, transient speech problems. Patients are not very good at describing speech disturbance. So they'll tell you that their their speech went funny or something like that. So if they give you something vague like that, then again, try and get to the specifics of it. What exactly was the problem with the speech? Was it dysarthria or dysphasia? Were they confused? Questions I often ask with speech are, did you know what you want to say, but it was difficult to get out? Or was it, did it feel like a problem forming the words with your mouth and tongue? Could you understand what other people were saying? And also, could you read? That's something, maybe that's a bit niche for paces, but often people with problems with speech also find it difficult to read. Um, so patients sometimes tell you that they couldn't use their mobile phone or couldn't read on the computer or whatever, and that, that's classic for dysphasia. And then I guess the other thing I mentioned that might come up is visual disturbance. TIAs can cause two types of visual disturbance. Well, maybe three types broadly. You can have a hemianopia where you lose a chunk of your vision in both eyes. Or you can have um, amaurosis fugax, which is a transient monocular visual loss. So a sudden complete loss of vision in one eye only. Or you can have double vision. And that's probably less common and again, less relevant for paces it's important to kind of keep in your mind that stroke and TIA produce negative symptoms by and large. So we're talking about loss of function, 
rather than positive symptoms like tingling or, or flashing lights in their vision. And those things are kind of good hallmarks for stroke mimics rather than um, TIA itself. And likewise, I think I touched on it before, but for TIAs, we're talking about a sudden onset of symptoms, uh, not a gradual progression of symptoms over minutes. So the symptoms should be fixed from the time of onset, Um, although they can sometimes wear off gradually. So I think that that's a really, really good summary of the types of lead-ins that you could be given by a patient. So just to go through those again. So you've either got a, a motor or sensory component or visual disturbance or speech disturbance, the three hallmarks of sort of cerebrovascular disease and really drilling down into the timing that sudden onset strongly suggests something vascular. One thing we'll come on to later is the fact that there are multiple mimics of these symptoms, which we'll come on to when we talk about the differential diagnosis of these patients. But Jen, I just want to go back to one thing you mentioned there, which was amaurosis fugax. Now that now that's a very it's a very characteristic description from patients. So you mentioned about monocular visual loss, but how, how do they often sort of how do the patients describe that? So the textbooks say that patients describe it as a curtain coming down over their eyes. I once heard a patient say that exactly that and I got really excited because usually they don't quite say it like that but they probably will for your patient's exam because you know your station five actors have read the textbooks I think. Perfect the the curtain coming down in the vision I've never heard that myself but that is the textbook thing and anything can happen in paces so it may well just be that they notice that one eye has, uh, has, has gone blind but the curtain coming down is is something that I'm sure many, many uh, listeners will come across in their revision. After you've asked your questions, which are most specific to a TIA, what other questions do we need to ask, which are maybe more specific for the potential mimics of a patient with having a TIA? So I think the most important one is probably headache. Neurological symptoms with a headache generates a completely different list of differentials to neurological symptoms without a headache. So you need to establish that early on that there's no headache. But if there is, then that opens up your differential to being a migraine, uh, a subarachnoid hemorrhage, a venous sinus thrombosis, GCA. So try and get that question in early to, to make sure you're on the right track. I would ask about any seizure-like activity involuntary movements, periods of amnesia, postictal symptoms afterwards, tongue biting, urinary incontinence, the usual stuff, uh, or any altered period of altered consciousness. Because sometimes pre-syncopal episodes or syncopal episodes turn up in TIA clinic, or obviously seizures would alter your consciousness where a TIA or stroke wouldn't. The only other thing would be if they're taking any insulin or anti-hyperglycemic medication which may be implicated in hypo or hyperglycemia yeah definitely i mean if they are diabetic it's worth asking them if they took their blood sugar around the time of the event also what their general blood sugar control is like and if they have they tend to have hypos and has it ever felt like this before yeah although i guess probably something unlikely to feature in paces but again having that within your differential is just so important. You can demonstrate you've got an understanding of the the TIA mimics. And then other parts of the history. So the the past medical history, what sort of elements of the past medical history should our listeners be asking about in these patients who come in with transient neurology of a possible vascular cause? For any vascular condition, you want to go exploring for vascular risk factors. So that's obviously hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, smoking history, ischemic heart disease or any peripheral vascular disease and any previous TIA or stroke. The more of them that they have, the higher the risk goes up incrementally. That's effectively what the ABCD2 score is doing is incorporating all those risk factors into a a validated score that, that quantifies what the risk is. But yeah, the more of those you have, the higher the risk. So any of those in your history should make you highly suspicious for the TIA. And then apart from that, AF is obviously a big one. I always ask patients if they've got a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or an irregular heart rhythm, um, but also if they've ever had palpitations. Um, And then related to AF, I guess risk factors for AF would be um, age, alcohol history, um, any cardiac problems in the past, uh, cardiomyopathies or um, 
valvular problems or well you probably know better than me Sam but um you could yeah you could fish around in the history for a long time looking for AF risk but at the end of the day you just want to know have they ever had a diagnosis and if so are they anticoagulated if not why not surprisingly often we come across patients in TIA clinic who have a known diagnosis of AF but for some reason or other are not anticoagulated so they may well throw that into your case and then you're home and dry. So we've, we've moved into the, the drug history sort of from the past medical history in a, in a beautiful segue there. But I guess one of the things which is also important, as well as the fact that even if they are anticoagulated, one thing to ask about would be compliance, which is something which we come across reasonably frequently as patients who are on a specific medication to prevent events like this. They're not taking their medicine and as a result, they end up having one. So always think about probing into their compliance with their anticoagulation if they're taking it. And Jen, would you say that if someone is compliant with their anticoagulation, whether that's warfarin or a DOAC or NOAC, is it true that it's you know pretty extremely unlikely that you would have a stroke due to AF if you are compliant with those medicines? Yeah, so um, I mean, it's not impossible. We see it occasionally, but your risk is drastically reduced. So I think definitely for the purposes of PACEs, if you've got a patient who's got AF on anticoagulation, their stroke risk should be almost as if they didn't have AF. Um, I guess the caveat to that is if they're on warfarin, you want to know what they are, their INR is and what their kind of time in therapeutic range has been. Um, so you'd ask to see their yellow book. And of course, compliance is really important. And particularly, we do often see patients having events when they've had their anticoagulation held for medical reasons just for a really short period of time. So if they've had to come off for an OGD or a biopsy or something, even for a day or two, they can quite quickly go back to higher levels of stroke risk. Yeah, so you've got to not be too accusatory with your patient that they haven't been compliant. Sometimes it's us that's forced them off it. (laughs) One of the things which is also important, which we tend to ask about just as a matter of routine, but family history. And the only real thing I could think of in a patient with a TIA would be whether or not they've got a a family history of any clotting disorders, clotting problems, any family members who've had clots at a young age. Yeah, I mean, just like you would do for a heart attack, a patient with a heart attack, you want to know, have they got first degree relatives that have had cardiovascular events at a young age just to get a kind of broad eyed sense of what their genetic risk is um but apart from that yeah i mean any diagnosed blood conditions or thrombophilias in the family is is useful too and then one thing you've already mentioned jen already was a, a social history including smoking history which is obviously relevant as a vascular risk factor um alcohol as you've already mentioned as well, risk of um, atrial fibrillation. So really important to probe into their um, alcohol intake. And then the other thing which is always important in patients such as these is function. So what's their function like at home? Any significant effect this is likely to have on their hobbies or work? And then finally, any effect it may have on their ability to drive, which I'm sure we'll come on to later. Uh, Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I find it really useful to know what the patient's occupation is as well, um, because you would be amazed how many HGV drivers we have in TIA clinic. But yeah, and I think it's just good practice to know a little bit about your patient and they'll love it in places. They'll love it if you ask what the patient does for a living, because then that can lead on to various ethical questions. Yeah. And one thing which maybe we should have uh, put right to the top, but Jen, I was going to ask, is this something you do routinely is asking um, uh, which hand is the patient's dominant hand? And if you could just explain what sort of the relevance of that is. Yeah. Do you know, I don't usually ask it unless I guess the patient is presented with dysphagia. Sometimes that's useful. The reason I don't ask it is because most, so all right-handed people are left-sided dominant um, for speech but 50% of left-handers are also left-handed dominant for speech. So even if you're left-handed, your speech centres are probably in the left hemisphere. But very occasionally you see somebody who's a left-hander presenting with dysphasia with a right-sided infarct. Okay, so we've taken a thorough systematic history from our patient who we suspect may have symptoms suggestive of a TIA. And the next part of it will be Um, performing a focused examination. Now, 
this is going to be extremely difficult to perform a full neurological examination in a station five. It's essentially impossible. So what we're going to try and do is nail down some of the absolute essentials. But obviously, this is going to be dependent on the leading and the history that um, you've received from the patient. I don't think that any listeners out there who have this come up to the station will be required to do a full neuro exam. But I think it's still useful for you to be able to demonstrate that you are checking for any potential residual neurology, or at least demonstrating you have an appreciation for the risk factors or the potential signs you might find, which might put this person at risk of TIAs. So to start off, one of the things which I thought would be mainly to do with a cardiovascular exam, palpating the pulse for AF, auscultating for um, carotid breweries is something you can do relatively quickly so would suit itself well to um, to a station five and then just checking for um, peripheral stigmata of high cholesterol in xanthalasma in the eyes and then xanthomata. I think that's exactly right Sam I think in my clinical practice that is what I prioritize in examining a TIA patient it's not the neurological exam it's actually a very brief cardiovascular exam and so I hope that that will be reflected in the examiner's approach as well, because by definition, the patient's neurological symptoms are, are transient. So they should have resolved by the time you're seeing them in clinic. And actually what you're looking for is a cause of their TIA. Feel the pulse, listen to for breweries, carotid breweries. And if you have time, have a listen for heart sounds. And then generally inspect, as you should, before you leap into examination in all paces stations. Um, but generally inspect for xanthalasma, tar staining of the fingernails and body habitus do a blood pressure or ask to do a blood pressure if you can great and if we then turn to the case where a patient may have presented with sensory motor issues now i just thought some relatively quick things which you could do in paces may include something like a pronator drift and briefly checking the power of the upper or lower limbs, depending on what they've reported. To be honest with you, I think checking sensation probably would take too much time in a station five. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the important point is tailor your neurological examination to whatever the patient's symptom was. So if they had transient motor symptoms, say facial droop, then maybe do a quick cranial nerve exam or at least examine um, for facial droop and make sure it's upper motor palsy rather than a lower motor palsy. But I'd have hoped that the patient wouldn't have any demonstrable neurology. But if you want to show that you're a thinking, savvy, common sense practitioner, then examine what they've told you is wrong with the patient. Yeah. And then moving on to a visual disturbance. Again, that would probably be a focused cranial nerve exam. And I guess that would just be a case of checking visual fields and checking for neglect and possibly eye movements, Jen. Yeah, absolutely. If the patient's told you they've completely lost vision, then check their acuity. Other than that, fields and eye movements, absolutely. And I guess one last thing to suggest would be to gesture yourself towards the uh, fundoscope uh, at some oh, point. Yeah. Don't do more than gesture towards that. You don't want to <laughs> overcomplicate your life. Don't pick it up if you can get away with it. <laughs> I mean, at, at least mention that you would want to do fundoscopy in those patients. And then, Jen, one of the things that we mentioned as well was talking about speech disturbance. Now, in patients, extremely unlikely that you're going to you're going to find anything. But I guess you could ask them to repeat some sort of typical phrases which you might uh, expect the patients to possibly have trouble with if they had ongoing symptoms. Do you have any uh, phrases particularly to hand that you might use oh, to assess these patients? I think I'm going to be terribly boring and suggest the phrases that you'll use anyway. Um, but yeah, it's usually baby hippopotamus and British constitution. But those um, are tests more for dysarthria than for dysphasia. So you're testing to see if they're, they're slurring their speech. But for dysphasia, um, I usually start off by asking the patient to name objects. So really simple things like a pen or a phone. And then go on to describe what's happening in a picture or how to make a cup of tea or what they have for breakfast. So you can test the fluency of their speech. That's the kind of my broad approach. Brilliant. So you've now taken the history and performed a focused examination of your patient. So Jen and I are going to take a little break. But after that, we are going to be covering the differential diagnosis. So the mimics of a TIA. And then we're going to talk about the correct investigations and management of these patients. 
Thanks for listening guys up to this point. I just thought I'd take the opportunity to give a quick nod over to the guys at PastTest.com who have kindly sponsored this episode for us. And if you want more content related to patients presenting with TIAs, they have a number of stations on this critical patient topic in the context of both a station two and a station five over at PastTest.com. So once you're done listening to this episode of the podcast, head over there, sign up to their Paces Revision Resources at PastTest.com to reinforce what you've learned from listening to the show. But for now, let's get back to our chat with Dr. Jen Collinson. So you've taken your systematic, focused, comprehensive history and performed a focused examination in a patient who you think may have had a TIA. But now Jen and I are going to talk about the potential differential diagnosis of these patients. This is going to include some of the diagnoses which we spoke about earlier, but others where there are potentially no other symptoms to ask about in your history of presenting complaint. So Jen, I know we spoke a little bit earlier about some of these, but what are some of the differential diagnoses of a patient who has symptoms suggestive of a TIA? Um, so there are many differential diagnoses. I think probably the most common two that come up in TIA clinic are migraines and seizures. For migraines, classically, the symptoms are more gradual onset. I mean, it's worth saying that migrainous aura can present in many ways. It doesn't have to be visual obscurations. It can be sensory symptoms, motor symptoms, speech problems. And also the aura doesn't always have to precede the migraine. It usually does, but sometimes it can be during the, the headache episode as well. But the classical thing with the neurological symptoms associated with migraine is that they tend to be a gradual onset and kind of spreading um, and take time to reach maximum also, they, the symptoms may not make sense in terms of vascular territory. So you might have somebody with some speech disturbance and left-sided weakness, which is, would be unexpected unless they were left-handed. Of course, headache features. So if you've got headache in your history, you've got to be pretty suspicious. Although I guess that's not always, always the case. You can have migraine, migraineous aura without the motor symptoms, but I think that's getting very tough for paces. <laughs> um, so I think you'd be very very unlucky to get that kind of case. I was just going to say, I think the the other thing which differentiates migraine from the TIA is something you mentioned earlier, which is the positive phenomena that you tend to get with migraine. So those, the, the flashing lights or the lines across the vision, that's the scintillating scotoma, as they're called, would be sort of clear differentiators between a patient who's having a TIA where you get predominantly negative symptoms with loss of vision or loss of function, as opposed to these sort of flashing lights, which you would expect in migraine. Yeah, that's absolutely right. With sensory symptoms, likewise, a patient will often say the arm felt funny or they lost sensation. But if you drill them down on that, it actually turns out that it's pins and needles. So you want to be clear, was it pins and needles or was it numbness? Could they not feel anything? Or was it a strange sensation? The other thing with migraine is that usually patients presenting with migraine with neurology have usually had migraine before. You want to know about their headache history. Have they had headaches for a long time? Have they ever had neurological symptoms with the headaches and that is a really strong indicator that you're probably dealing with migraine although for the purposes of real life we do mri scan patients presenting with headache and transient neurological symptoms all the time because there is an overlap and you have to be really careful so i think unless you're 100 percent sure it's migraine say that it could be a tia it could be a migraine and you'd like to get an mri and a stroke opinion to differentiate between that because people get caught out calling transient neurological episodes migraine and stroke is not black and white it can cause positive symptoms it can cause headache so for the purposes of real life just be a little bit careful and if you're not sure speak to a stroke physician or refer the patient to a clinic excellent disclaimer there love it yes and then moving on to the other differential diagnosis, which should fit into our, our range of differentials. One of them you mentioned already was seizure activity, but I guess this may not be sort of sort of generalized tonic clonic seizures, Jen. They're going to be more sort of maybe more focal seizures. I'm going to be slightly chicken and start with a disclaimer again on this one um, in that 
you have to be pretty careful because sometimes strokes can present um, with a seizure at the time of onset. So if you have somebody who's had possible seizure episode with residual you know, neurological symptoms or deficits on examination, then again, be, be careful. But um, for the purposes of PACES, you want to kind of establish in your history, did the patient remember it all? Was it witnessed? What did they... Uh, were they witnessed to lose consciousness or have any abnormal activity um, in abnormal movements in their arms or legs? And usually, again, for seizures, it's positive symptoms rather than negative symptoms. They don't completely lose function of an arm or leg. Um, they may notice abnormal movements or they weren't able to control it or there were sensory symptoms. But I think the biggest clue that this is seizure is if there was amnesia for the episode. Then I'm then I'm that really raises my suspicion. Yeah. And would you say that in the case of TIAs, that would be quite unusual not to remember the, the episode. Yeah, unusual, not impossible. <laughs> disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. <laughs> Transient global amnesia is a whole different topic and an interesting phenomenon that nobody really understands the etiology, but there is a theory that TGA is, is basically a TIA affecting the memory parts of the brain. I mean, it, it kind of makes sense if you can have deficits from blocking off other bits of brain that resolve, then it makes sense that if you did that to the bit of your brain that has memory, the patient would present with an episode of amnesia. A bit nuanced, a bit complicated. In real life, speak to a stroke physician and get an MRI scan. But um, by and large, patients who present with amnesia for the event and then particularly if they've got postictal symptoms, if they've had incontinence or if they're witnessed to have seizure like activity in their arms and legs, or if they've had any reason to have seizures. So if they've got any abnormal brain or head injury or neurological pre-existing neurological condition, then you're um, suspicious that it could be seizures. Yeah. And for more information on seizures, you can go back to our seizures episode with neurology registrar Hamish Morrison. Oh, I feel like I should listen to that. I might learn something. <laughs> Have you said anything that's conflicted with me, Sam? No, no. Oh, it... We're all good. Okay, great. <laughs> and then just mentioning something, um, another differential, which again fits with another previous episode of this podcast. So demyelination or multiple sclerosis as a cause of um, possible um, visual obscuration is a possible differential diagnosis if the patient has presented with visual disturbance. And again, for all the info on optic neuropathy, you can go back to our episode with Dr. Luke Bonetto. And just before we recorded this, Jen mentioned another differential, which would be incredibly bold to put as your preferred diagnosis in paces, but functional neurology is a cause of this sort of presentation, but it would be extremely bold to put at the top of your list, but would potentially be worth mentioning if all other tests came back negative. So moving now on to the investigations and management, because most of the time the questions from the examiners are going to focus on how you would manage this patient, either if they presented on the medical take or if they came into your clinic. So Jen, what are your essential investigations for these patients who present with possible TIAs? So we can start with blood tests. I'd expect a full blood count, use knees, LFTs, a cholesterol profile, HbA1c and fasting glucose and renal function. I think that's everything for a bog standard case. If you have a young patient, then it becomes much more complicated and probably beyond the, sp the scope of this podcast. I mean, briefly, you would consider doing a thrombophilia screen, a vasculitis screen, other tests directed by their systemic symptoms. And then if we move on from blood tests, um, an ECG is absolutely essential. And if possible, more than one ECG at different points in time, um, because AF is a, a huge cause of TIA and um, makes up a greater proportion of the TIA patients as they age. So for patients, uh, they say that up to 40% of patients over 80 have paroxysmal AF or permanent AF. So um, be very, look for it hard in those patients, basically. So I guess leading on for that, from that, if the patient has a normal ECG and you haven't found any other 
other kind of definite leads as to the cause of their stroke, then you would proceed to have a prolonged period of cardiac monitoring. And different hospitals have different time periods that they do as standard. But here we do a seven day tape as standard for all TIA patients. Perfect. And then moving on from that, what would you get in the way of imaging for these patients? So I guess the money is in the head Im- head imaging. I mean, we could talk about chest x-rays and echoes and all of that, and maybe we will in a minute. But um, if we just cut to the chase, CT heads are actually not mandatory for patients that have had transient neurology if they're not anticoagulated and if there are no other red flags for alternative pathology. So if they have a headache, I probably I would get a CT acutely because obviously it's really important to rule out forms of brain hemorrhage or, you know, subarachnoid or space occupying lesion, et cetera. Um, but in a patient with transient neurological symptoms and no headache who is not on anticoagulation, you do not need you to do a CT head acutely. And you can safely give 300 milligrams of aspirin in ED or ambulatory care or whatever. And as long as you make a TIA clinic referral, because they will be seen in TIA clinic pretty quickly, usually within 24 hours. But depending on the hospital, maybe that would go to 48 or 72 hours. TIA clinics will offer most TIA patients an MRI scan as part of the clinic workup. So rest assured that if you don't scan your patient acutely, they will get an MRI or if it's clinically indicated, they will get an MRI via TIA clinic. I think the caveat to that is that you should safety net your patient that if their symptoms return or get worse on 300 milligrams of aspirin before they have their MRI scan, then they should represent hospital. And that's in case it's crescendo TIAs or in case they've had a bleed. So just make sure the patient knows that as you're making your scanning decisions for them. And Jen, do you often request carotid Dopplers for your patients in TIA clinic or is that more of a stroke specific investigation? Um, Yeah, so most of our patients get carotid Dopplers. The ones in whom that's really important are those with lots of vascular risk factors. Um, And we try and reserve the carotid Doppler scans for those who would be candidates for a carotid endotracheotomy, because that's the question you're trying to answer is, is their stroke caused by carotid artery stenosis? And if so can we fix it with surgery? Um, so sometimes in, in frail comorbid patients, I don't scan, but sometimes it's useful information anyway, because if you can see that they've got really cruddy carotids, then you can go a bit harder on managing their vascular risk factors medically. Um, so yes, most patients do get carotid Dopplers and we're looking for ipsilateral carotid stenosis to the side where you think the lesion is. So if they've had right-sided symptoms, you're looking at the left-sided carotid. In order for there to be, to be a good case for surgery, you need it to be symptomatic. So the cause of the stroke. Perfect. And then one of the investigations which you uh, which you mentioned was uh, a transthoracic echo. Is, th- is that something which you get routinely for your patients? Uh, yeah, I think there's different practice amongst different stroke physicians regarding echoes. I think the case for getting an echo is stronger the younger the patient is. And the more doubt there is regarding the, the cause of their stroke. I think as patients get older, you can, on balance of probabilities, be more certain that the patient's stroke is because of cardiovascular risk factors. And so it's unlikely that an echo is going to change your management. But for young patients, 100%, they need an echo to look at uh, for structural heart disease, valvular pathology, and possibly a PFO. So a a PFO is a patent foramen ovale, which is a, a kind of communication between the right side and left side of the heart that can allow venous clots to pass into the arterial circulation directly through the heart. Um, you can't actually see PFOs on a transthoracic echo. You need either a transesophageal echo or a bubble echo. So we usually kind of work it up in a stepwise fashion. So if, for a young patient or somebody with a cryptogenic stroke with no cardiovascular risk factors, we'd start with a period of ambulatory cardiac monitoring and the transthoracic echo and then move up to a TOE or a bubble echo if we felt there was a really strong or there was a really kind of strong indication. The other thing that might just be worth mentioning briefly is um, carotid and vertebral artery dissections. Um, So they do come up from time to time. You can see carotid dissections on, or you can get suggestions of it on carotid Dopplers. Um, But if the patient's had chest pain or neck pain or occipital headache then you have to be kind of careful to rule out a dissection as a cause for their stroke and so um the kind of gold standard test for that is a ct angiogram 
Yeah, brilliant. That was something we didn't uh, mention earlier, but yeah, certainly a, a differential diagnosis. And then moving on to the management of these patients. So one of the things you mentioned, Jen, is that these patients need to be seen by a specialist and investigated, or at least have their investigations planned, usually within 24 hours of the onset of, um, or at least 24 hours uh, since presentation to their first medical contact. And then one of the first things would be risk stratifying them. And you mentioned the ABCD2 score. So what are the components of that score and how how is it used in clinical practice? So, yeah, the components are um, the A stands for age and it's um, age over 60 gets you a point. The B is for blood pressure and that scores you a point if your blood pressure is over 140, over 90 at any time during the assessment period. Um, C is for clinical features of TIA and that's there's a, you can either score one point or two points for that based on so one point is speech disturbance without weakness and two points is is weakness um, but if you have any other symptoms so if you have sensory symptoms or amaurosis that's zero the first D is duration of symptoms so again you can score zero if it's less than 10 minutes one if it's 10 to 59 minutes and two points for over 60 and then the second d is diabetes so you score a point for diabetes and the use of the abt abcd2 score is kind of in flux at the moment so traditionally we've used it to risk stratify patients as to their likelihood of having a, a an event in the next seven days or in the next 90 days and based on their risk we decide who to see most urgently at TIA clinic. And we consider anybody with a score of over four as high risk and they should be seen in TIA clinic within 24 hours. And um, if their score is less than four, then you can justify seeing them in anything up to a week. That used to be the NICE guidelines. They have changed recently to suggest that any patient with TIA symptoms should be seen within 24 hours because even if your score is low, you could still have had a TIA and by definition, if you've had a TIA, you're at high risk of having another one. So the ABCD2 score is slightly diminishing in its importance, but I think it's definitely something you should still know about and probably still important to mention in a PACES exam. And then I guess the next thing is lifestyle advice, which is used in pretty much every station where there's some sort of vascular atherosclerotic pathology where the advice we're giving to our patients is essentially to improve or optimize their cardiovascular risk. And you should really, by the time your exam comes around, you should really be able to just rattle all of these off. So eating a healthy diet, reducing their salt intake, controlling their high blood pressure, um, remaining compliant with their medications, regular exercise and reducing their alcohol consumption and obviously stopping smoking as well. And all of this just works together to reduce your um, cardiovascular risk. So that should be something which if you're asked about, you should be able to just rattle that off to the examiner as a means of demonstrating, you know, that these patients have significant lifestyle changes to make to reduce the risk of them having further events like this. And then moving on to the medical therapy for these patients. So the examiners might say, how are you going to treat this patient? Or everything you've said so far is risk stratification and sort of lifestyle advice, but how are you actually going to manage these patients? So Jen, what do you do for these patients in terms of medical therapy? The mainstay of our treatment is antiplatelet therapy. So the current teaching is to use aspirin 300 milligrams for two weeks and then switch to 75 for stroke. Um, and for TIA, people have been using 75 milligrams of clopidogrel earlier. So often they're switched to 75 clopidogrel in TIA clinic. And there's been some recent evidence. Uh, there's a big trial in 2018 that showed that actually dual antiplatelet therapy for two to three weeks significantly reduces stroke risk compared to monotherapy. So more and more in clinic, we're using dual antiplatelet therapy with 75 aspirin and clopidogrel for two to three weeks and then dropping down to clopidogrel lifelong. I think as long as you give some sensible antiplatelet therapy uh, answer in your PACES exam, they won't be able to mark against it because practice does vary and some places are more up to date than others in their antiplatelet guidelines. Um, then Apart from antiplatelets, it's really important to ma manage your modifiable risk factors effectively with, with appropriate 
tablets. So if they're hypertensive, um, they need to be aiming for a blood pressure of less than 135 over 80 long term. If they have high cholesterol, we need to use statins. That's usually 80 milligrams of atorvastatin to aim for a total of cholesterol of less than four. If they are diabetic, then there are HbA1c targets and they need to be checking the BMs regularly and having reviewed by the district, the diabetic um, specialist nurses. Um, so tailor the medical management is really tailored to the, the risk factors of the patient, apart from the antiplatelet therapy bit. Aside from all of that is anticoagulation for AF. So if you discover that a patient's got AF, then instead of antiplatelet therapy, they should be anticoagulated. And that's usually from day one in TIA clinic. Perfect. And then one of the other considerations, which you mentioned earlier, is about the consideration for surgical management if they're found to have carotid stenosis. And from the provisional reading that I did in preparing for this episode, it, it does vary depending on which set of guidelines or which you know research group you choose to follow, Jen. There is a lot of trial evidence about um, carotid endarterectomies and I think what's fair to say is that we're very confident if they, if you have a symptomatic carotid stenosis of over 70%, then there is a lot to be gained from offering a carotid endarterectomy that has, there's big benefit from cleaning out the artery in terms of stroke prevention and preventing disability and death. It's a little bit less clear for the, the group that have 50 to 70% stenosis. Those are, are kind of judged more on a case by case basis by the vascular surgeons. But essentially, in terms of how what our practice is, all patients with, a, with over 50% stenosis on the symptomatic side are referred to vascular surgery. And at the end of the day, they, they make the call. So one of the things that you mentioned earlier, Jen, which we didn't really dig into, was about crescendo TIAs. So can you sort of define those, explain what they are and, and how are these are managed differently to sort of your run-of-the-mill TIAs? Sure. So um, crescendo TIAs is where a patient has more than one event in, in quick succession. Um, and so often that'd be within a week. If a patient has more than one TIA in a week, that tells you that they're very high risk of stroking or having a, a big stroke. So um we're more cautious with those patients. They may be admitted. Um, if not, they're heavily safety netted. And you'd, I'd feel very much more reassured if they had somebody at home with them. In terms of how that we change our medical management, if the patient's admitted, sometimes we ask the nurses to keep waking them every few hours over the night to find out if they've had an, another event overnight if they do have an event they can be candidates for thrombolysis so that's a good reason to keep them in hospital if they if they have a proper stroke also i mean often patients that have crescendo tias are because of a symptomatic aortic uh, carotid stenosis so they will have kind of investigations expedited and vascular referral urgently if that's the case yeah I, sometimes i guess it's worth briefly mentioning that if your patient's having the same episode over and over again then you have to wonder if it's really TIA. Because if you're throwing off clots to bits of your brain, it's very unusual that you would throw off a clot to the same bit of brain over and over again. So you may consider an alternative diagnosis in that case. And then one thing we discussed a little bit earlier, and again, we were saving it for the end of your discussion with the examiner would be driving. Obviously on the pre-paces podcast, we always say that you should just in the station, you should always say you would check the DVA guidelines in front of the patient in order to give them the most up-to-date advice because we know things do change. Disclaimer, another disclaimer alert, uh, correct at the time of recording. Jen, what do you currently advise for your patients who've had TIAs about driving? So all patients that have had a TIA should not drive for 28 days from the event. Um, and that's pretty unnegotiable. The reason for that is that you're risk of a recurrent stroke or TIA is highest within the first month. In fact, it's highest within the first 48 hours and then the first week. So it kind of decays exponentially. But the risk is it's starting to get back to a kind of it's starting to plateau after about a month. Often patients don't like it when you tell them that you can't drive for a month. But if you explain that that's because of their risk of having an event behind the wheel and that they will not be covered by insurance if they are caught driving and have an, have an accident 
then they'll be kind of legally liable. That usually scares them enough to make them stop. And Jen, is that the same if you have a Group 1 licence, so a car or motorcycle licence, and are the differences if they drive, for example, a, a bus, coach or lorry? Yeah, there, there is a difference. So um, a Group 1 licence, you can't drive for a month, but you don't have to tell DVLA and you can go back to driving if your symptoms have completely resolved um, and you haven't had any further events. Uh, group 2 licence, unfortunately, they are not able to drive for a whole year and they must tell the DVLA and they have to go, undergo health checks and stuff before they can go back to driving after, after that year. So it's pretty massive consequences for those people with Group 2 licences. Perfect. And one of the things we just wanted to finish off on, we, I'm, I'm very aware that we focused a lot of this episode on TIAs as a Station 5, but TIAs can also come up in the communication stations in PACES. So, Jen, what hopefully we've managed to give the listeners most of the information which would be relevant and applicable to communicating this to either a patient or a patient's relative. But what are the common types of communication stations which could be given to our listeners um so i think in the most basic way explaining what a tia is why it's happened and how you're going to try and prevent it happening in the future is plenty to communicate and and can in itself be challenging because um there's a lot of information to to um, impart on the patient um, and you have to kind of do it very carefully, avoiding medical jargon. So it may be as simple as explaining the diagnosis, although I say simple, slightly tongue in cheek. But then other things that could come up are counselling the patient on um, the need not to drive and how it might affect their, their um, daily function or their ability to work. Um, and... Another thing that comes up is counselling for anticoagulation. So talking about risks and benefits of anticoagulation um, and making sure that the patient's aware or uh, kind of in agreement that the benefits outweigh the risks. Brilliant. So, dear listeners, we are just about out of time for this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, where we have been discussing transient ischemic attacks with acute medical registrar and stroke registrar, Dr. Jen Collinson. So Jen, thank you so much for giving us all your expertise in the history, examination, investigations and management of these patients. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope that all of that stays correct for as long as it takes your listeners to absorb it all because stroke medicine changes so quickly. So we may find ourselves doing another podcast like this in about six months time, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so... Let's let's finish on a final disclaimer that it is correct at the time of recording. And guys, it's been a real pleasure to bring you this episode. You can tell that TIAs is such a, a broad and varied topic with many potential applications in the MRCP paces. So we really hope that comes in handy for you. If you do like the podcast and you've enjoyed this episode, please like, comment and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts don't forget you can get in touch with us on the usual social media channels on twitter it's at prepaces podcast and on email it's prepaces podcast at gmail.com thanks so much for listening guys and we will see you next time on the prepaces podcast <laughs>